Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Now this morning, uh, we're going to have our uh, time in the Word today. And uh, our pulpit is gone because of the children's ministry, so um, that's, uh, we'll, we'll make this work just fine, though. Earlier, uh, Marcy mentioned um, something along the lines of uh, just imagine yourself uh, going to visit uh, Bethlehem. And uh, I've been to Bethlehem twice, and uh, it's, it's a, the last time we were there, um, very few tourists were allowed to go there because it was right after we left there when all that uh, battle started in the Church of the Nativity. In Bethlehem, there's a church called the Church of the Nativity that is built over the place where Jesus, historically the traditional site where Jesus was born. And, and that is when you go there and you're thinking of something like this, a manger scene and so forth, and you get there and it is quite uh, different because you go down, you come in like a church like this and you go down behind, you go downstairs and in downstairs is, is this place where Jesus traditionally was born. But of course, over the centuries, uh, and the church was built over it, that uh, it's tiled, it's more of a, a nave type thing with candles and incense and so on. And it's not quite what you expect of a cave or a, uh, a animal shelter. But they built those over those sites. And actually, because those churches were built over the years, the the Muslims and so on did not destroy them because there was a church over that. But we go to let's, let's imagine we're going to Bethlehem today, a little town of Bethlehem. Today is quite a big tourist center actually, but it's still a small town. It's not too far from Jerusalem. And um, I want you to just imagine for a minute. Um, I'm going to Bethlehem, okay? And I've invited my friend Jim Fossey. Jim, stand up for a minute. He, he was up here, okay? So you see, Jim's about the same size I am, okay? We're both about six foot four. Okay, thanks, Jim. All right. So Jim and I are going to Bethlehem, and we're excited to get to Bethlehem and get to the church nativity. And I want to invite my son-in-law, Chris. Stand up, Chris. Chris is a little bit taller than me and Jim. See, he's about six six. So okay, thanks, Chris. So the three of us, the three wise men, are uh, <laughs> we're heading to Bethlehem, and we're excited. And we're going to get into the church nativity to go see where Jesus was born. And we get to the church and we rush the three of us to the door. So you're imagining this now, right? We're rushing for the door. We're going in the door. And this is what we have to do. There's the door. (laughs) That's the door into the church. That is the only door into the church that Jim and Chris and I have to get through (laughs) at once. Um, (laughs) that's the door to the church of the nativity there were two other doors at one time but this is the door that you go into to walk into a church as large as this church uh, when you get inside the church the reason that it was built that way was it's called the uh, door of humility because there's only one way to get through that and you can imagine right it's to get down on your knees almost and to go through that door it also prohibited any horsemen from driving into the church with their horses and destroying the church. It was actually a form of protection to do. But that is the door to the church of the nativity. Um, oh, little town of Bethlehem. This morning, if we turn to Matthew 5, we're going to be in several scriptures this morning. 
And the Fossey family read to us the very familiar, Matthew chapter 2, the very familiar account of the visit of the Magi to Bethlehem. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer, though, uh, first of all, as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we... We again commit this time of our worship service to you to open your word, to look into your word. Uh, Tim, with us this morning, Laura, as a reminder that uh, we have brothers and sisters all over the world, uh, many who have finished or are are finishing the Lord's Day today, others who are getting started. And uh, we have a, a camaraderie and a fellowship, a family bind and bond with them. And so we just thank you that we can take these few moments to set aside, to worship you, to sing, to enjoy our children ministering to us, uh, to give our tithes and offering, and to now uh, worship by reading your word together. And so we ask your blessing on us and all the family of God around the world this day. In Christ's name, amen. In Matthew chapter 2 that uh, the Fosses read to us today, and of course the context is the wise men come uh, from the east, and they inquire of the Jewish rabbis and the Jewish leaders, we have come to find, we've been following his star, we have, we have come to find the place where he is born. And as they come to Bethlehem, and all the rabbis and the Pharisees knew exactly where he was to be born, because of the very, very well-known Old Testament uh, prophecy in Scripture. But in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 5, In Bethlehem in Judea they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. Now I want, you to, I want you to read this carefully, okay? But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And then we go on with the account of Herod. Uh, and, and when it says that Herod called the Magi secretly, found out exactly, says, you know, go find him and come back so we may worship him. And you'll notice, of course, in this passage as well, in verse 3, that when King Herod heard about this king, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And that's because when Herod's upset, everybody's upset because he was a very vicious, uh, jealous man, killed his own wife and son because of his jealousy of, of, of his reign and then taking over his reign. And so the whole city is in a turmoil because Bethlehem, because, because they are going to Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. This prophecy um, that we, are, we want to look at this morning, that before we get to the prophecy it came from, let's look at a little bit at the history of Jerusalem. Why don't you go back to Genesis chapter 35, the history of Bethlehem. Genesis chapter 35, and the story of the patriarchs. In Genesis chapter 35, we have uh, Jacob and his family going back to the promised land. Jacob returns to Bethel. And uh, Jacob and his, his uh, wife Rachel, his wife Leah, and their handmaidens, handmaidens and the children that will comprise the tribes of Israel, as they are traveling back to the promised land, back to the land of his fathers. Verse 16, they moved from Bethel. And while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. 
and she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. And as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Ani, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb just outside of Bethlehem. I have another picture that um, this would be an artist's conception from a few centuries ago of Rachel's tomb in Bethlehem. And uh, this may or may not be, like many places in the Middle East, may or may not be the actual site of Rachel's tomb. But it's the historical, traditional site of Rachel's tomb from a couple centuries ago. If you go there today, you will see uh, Kavar Rachel, the place of the tomb of Rachel, there today. And it's interesting that the author of Genesis, Moses, says, and the tomb is there to this day, and even to this day, there is a place where Jews come and remember the death of Rachel right outside of Bethlehem. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we have the next, I think, what we would say significant story of Bethlehem. In the context of this passage is, if you have a, your Bible might say in chapter 15, something like, the rejection of Saul by God. First king of Israel, Saul, who starts out as a humble, godly man, ends up uh, being rejected by God because of his sin and disobedience, his arrogance, especially in offering a sacrifice that he was not supposed to do. And the Lord said to Samuel, chapter 16 and verse 1, How long will you mourn for Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. And so after inquiring of God how he could do this, he knows that Saul will be angry and kill him. God tells him to go. And he goes to Bethlehem in verse 4. He arrives at Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled and they met him. You know, this the prophet is showing up, a known prophet of God. This could be bad news. And he comes and they, and, and they say, you come in peace. And Samuel says, yes, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice. Consecrate yourselves, verse 5, and come to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And Jesse brings all of his sons. And God has said, you go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town, especially at this time. A very small, insignificant city. Very insignificant. It's outside of Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and, and even at this time, you know, Jerusalem is not the capital yet, but, but Saul has his headquarters elsewhere. And he comes to the city, and Jesse comes out, and he brings all of his sons out. And, and, and Samuel looks at him, and he sees the oldest son, the tall, strong, kingly-looking son. And he, and he says probably what, what you and I would, would say, there he is. There's the man. That's obviously the next king of Israel. You remember King Saul? It says he was a shoulder, he was neck and head above everybody in Israel. When a crowd got together and they stood up, you would see King Saul. He was the tallest man in Israel. And here the next king to replace him is standing before Samuel. 
And you notice it says in verse 6, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here. But the Lord said to Samuel, and this is a very well-known verse, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things of man. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel has each of Jesse's sons. They each come by. God says, no, 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 no. All seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And God says, no, they're all there. All the boys. And in desperation, Samuel says, Jesse, uh, is this it? Are these all, in verse 11, are these all the sons you have? And God made a mistake. He he says, he sent me here to anoint your son. Oh yeah, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. I mean, I want you to think about this for a minute. Here the prophet of God comes and and tells Jesse, bring all your sons. And he doesn't even think enough of his youngest son to invite him. His father assumes, of course he doesn't mean him. And he brings seven sons past him. And kind of embarrassingly has to say, oh, oh yeah, how do you forget about one of your sons? You know? I mean, you know, that's a lot of kids, but still, it's not that many. You know? Oh, yeah. There's, there's, and Samuel says, well, you go get him right now. We will not sit down until he arrives. And in verse 12, he sent, he had him brought before him, and it says he was ruddy. That means he was kind of earthy looking. He was sort of a brownish red from uh, being out in the sun uh, shepherding. He had fine appearance, he was handsome, and the Lord says, Rise and anoint him. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And David, after he's anointed by God, goes back to watching the sheep. He's going to be the new king of Israel. But there's nothing else for him to do right now. And he goes back to the outskirts of Bethlehem, maybe by the tomb of Rachel, and is taking care of the sheep. But the new king of Israel is going to come from Bethlehem. And I think you know how the story unfolds. It's exactly what happens. Samuel is rejected by God. Samuel is killed in battle. David is publicly anointed by Samuel. He's anointed here at his family. He's anointed publicly before the people. And David sets up his capital in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is known from then on as the city of David. The city of Zion. The city of David where the kings of Israel will come from. And God makes a promise to David. And he says, David, there will always be a king on the throne in Jerusalem from your family. Always. Even if they disobey me. Even if they sin like, like Saul did, I will not reject your family. There will always be a king on the throne from your family in Jerusalem. And from that point on in the story, all the kings reigned in Jerusalem and until the nation split in two, but the kings of the south always came from Jerusalem. And so we go to the prophecy that, that was quoted this morning in Micah 
chapter 5. If you go to Micah chapter 5, now it's one of the minor prophets. Sometimes they're a little hard to find, and don't, don't, don't be embarrassed. Uh, Amos, uh, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. It's in that area of your Bible. Obadiah, Jonah, go a little further, you'll come to Micah. And we have this passage, and it's in Micah chapter 5. And this is during the time that the nation is divided. Uh, things are not going well. The future does not look very bright. And it's in the midst of this that we see in verse 1, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod, which was a way of, of, of total disrespect and, and defeat when, when the enemy would come and strike your king with a rod across his cheek and, and smash his face and, and, and utterly defeat. But you, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient of times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth to the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace." And this particular passage became known in, in, among the teachers of Israel as clearly a passage that was speaking about the coming Messiah. He would come and he would reign. He would come from Jerusalem, the kings from Bethlehem. The kings in Jerusalem were an embarrassment. They were weak. They were defeated. And God is going to replace them with a king who comes from Bethlehem, from the city of David, the original city of David, and he will come and he will shepherd. And he says, though you are small among the clans of Israel, among the clans of Judah. And the word small there is really a, a sort of a, a weak translation. The word that's in the Hebrew used here for small is not the normal word that just means little. It means insignificant. It means really not important. The least, like David and his brothers the least important, the least likely. You, Bethlehem, though you are the least likely of places for a king to come from, out of you will come one who will not only rule my people, but later in the passage you'll notice it says that he will stand and he will shepherd his flock. And so for centuries, for 500 years plus, Israel held to this passage, held to this prophecy, and look for that king to come from Bethlehem who would rule, who would defeat their enemies, who would bring peace to the land, and who would shepherd the people. But I want you to notice, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. And we go to Matthew, and Matthew, when he, when he gives us this verse, you'll notice he interprets it a little bit which the rabbis would do, and this would not be unusual. He says, but you, Bethlehem, in the, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the peoples. You notice that? You are by no means least among rulers of Judah. It almost seems opposite. Micah says, though you are the most insignificant, and Matthew says, you are by no means 
the most insignificant. What Matthew is doing here is interpreting this prophecy in the light of current events. All of a sudden, Bethlehem is important. Even though it was not important, now it is because the king will come from this insignificant, small village that has no business of producing a king for God's people when Jerusalem was the Zion was the city of the great king. But Matthew quotes the prophecy from the Pharisees, from the teachers. No, it's from Jerusalem, from Bethlehem. Now you are important. Out of you will come a ruler, and notice what it says, who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. The prophecy from Micah also says he will, he will be from ancient of days. And I wonder if he had in mind the prophecy of Isaiah. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This idea of there's something special about this Messiah. He is more than just a human king. To call him Everlasting Father opens the door that this Messiah is much more than just a human baby from the family of David. Matthew chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, the angel comes and tells them to go to Bethlehem. The ruling governor of Rome in Palestine says, go to Bethlehem because you are to be taxed according to your lineage where you came from. And Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, the most unsuspecting people to bring the King and Messiah to Israel. A young girl, probably, and her husband, a virgin birth that nobody can explain, but the angel has brought it to them and they've accepted it by faith. They are poor, common people. We know that because later on when Jesus is presented in the temple, and they go to bring their sacrifice. They could bring a regular sacrifice. Or if you were too poor, you could bring the poor person's sacrifice of a couple of pigeons. And that's all they could afford. They brought the poor person's sacrifice that the law allowed. Because they were so poor. They were so unlikely. They were so common. And they came back to a city that was so unlikely. That was so common. That was so poor. And had no business producing the king of Israel except by God's plan and God's choice. A little town of Bethlehem. But when you sing that song and you read these scriptures, I want you to think of it more in the sense of little, insignificant, unimportant town of Bethlehem. It was not just small, it was insignificant. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. But out of you will come one who will be ruler and shepherd. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd cares. A shepherd protects. A shepherd loves. A shepherd guides. A shepherd corrects. Out of you will come one who will rule and will shepherd my people Israel.
And if that were true, which it was, then in their hearing was the fulfillment of the promise of God that this glorious Messianic kingdom was about to explode in their midst and they would witness the coming of the King of Israel. And He did come. But what they didn't understand and couldn't understand is that He came to die on the cross of Calvary to pay for my sin and to pay for your sin. You know, as I thought about this story once again, and every year at Christmas time, as we, especially as we're sharing God's Word, and we come back to these stories, and it's, and it's traditional and, and helpful to come back and reconsider because there's so much to think about. I thought about this theme today as we lit the candle today, the Bethlehem candle. And I want you to go home with this thought because you will be hearing the word Bethlehem many times over the next weeks. And I want that word to remind you of how God has worked. Because I want you to go to 1 Corinthians in Paul's writings, the very first chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, who was one of those Pharisees and scribes who opposed Christianity, but was saved by the grace of God on the road to Damascus, and became an apostle called to the Gentile world to bring the message that what God is doing today is bringing Jew and Gentile, male and female, bond and slave, as Paul says, all together into one new people of God, the church, the body of Christ. And we are the new people of God, the new humanity, as he talks about in Ephesians. And we believe that when God takes us as a church, not just our church, but as the Christian church, when he calls us to heaven that He is going to bring that Messianic kingdom still. It is still going to take place. The Messiah is going to come back and He is going to reign literally as promised in the Old Testament and Micah is going to come true. He will come and He will bring peace and He will reign and He will rule and He will shepherd. And it will actually happen. We believe that's true. What God is doing today is calling in new people, the people, the, the church, the body of Christ. But I want you to notice what and how and who he calls. But verse 25, well, look at verse 20. Paul says the Corinthian, this church at Corinth, we've been to Corinth too, a Greek, a Greek cosmopolitan port city, much like Seattle, with this tremendous convergence of religions and races and cultures and people as a port city in Greece. A city with quite a reputation for sin as well. And God starts a church there through the Apostle Paul. And Paul stayed there for 18 months and shepherded that church. But look what he says in verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then in verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness, if there was such a thing of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. And and this is written to a Christian church, people of the body of Christ. I want you to take this to yourselves. As I read this to you all, we could put Bereans. Think of what you were called, of who you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And we look around our congregation today, family of God and those who are visiting with us today, this is probably true. 
I know it's true of me. And at least a few of you that I know well, it's, it's true of too. We're, we're not the smartest people in the world. We're not the most powerful people in the world. We're certainly not the most influential people, even in Seattle. And we're not of noble birth. Nobody here is going to become a king. But, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Look at this. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He's talking about the people of Corinth. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ. And I thought about the story of Bethlehem. That little insignificant town that really didn't matter. Wouldn't maybe even be there today as so many of those towns have disappeared. And I'm reminded that this is how God works. This is why you're here today and this is why I am standing here today. In Deuteronomy, God says to Israel, as Moses stands at the Jordan River, he's about to die and the people are going to go on without him in the promised land. And he reminds them, listen, God did not call you because of your righteousness. God did not call you because there were so many of you. He was saying, God did not call you because you, were, you deserved it. He called you because he chose to set his love upon you. He chose the insignificant. He chose the weak. He chose the family of Abraham, a, a foreigner from the Ur of Chaldees, a pilgrim who never even, who never even built a house in Canaan. He never owned property in Canaan. It was, it was all promised the future. The only property he ever actually purchased, as far as I can tell, was this burial spot for his family in Hebron. He was a wanderer. But God chose him. And God chose Israel. And God chose Mary and Joseph. And God chose that little town of Bethlehem. And today, with God's work, what He is doing today in building the church, the body of Christ, God has chosen to call us. And you know who we are? We're just like the Corinthians. We're the unimportant. We're the uninfluential. We're the very common of the common that God has called to be His people and to bear His message and to bear the message of the truth of Christmas to this world. I don't know about you, but, you know, we all kind of, we all sort of struggle at times with our weaknesses and our insignificance. There are times we even think, you know, if, if, if people really knew me as I know me, would they even like me? You know? I mean, that's our human condition. The fact of the matter is, God called you in your weaknesses. God chose you in your insignificance. And even now, after the years of walking with Christ in our, in our humanity, there are times and, uh, daily that we are aware of our, of our weakness, our insignificance, our failings, and that we have to keep coming back. I appreciate what you know, Tim is being honest with us today. You know, it's easier for us to go to the mission field 
and, and go to Kuala Lumpur and, and really be awed by this city and the people. Um, but you know what? Whether it's Kuala Lumpur or Seattle or Leavenworth or Chicago or Yakima, wherever it is, there are times where we get discouraged. There are times where it starts to wear on us. There are times when we're so aware of our weaknesses and our, and our insignificance. And I want to tell you, friends, that's by design. That's why God called you. That's why God daily wants to infuse His strength and His power and His presence in you for this very reason. And I want you to take this home today. And I want you to connect this with Bethlehem this Christmas season. Verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. My righteousness is not because of anything I do. It is because of Jesus Christ. My holiness is not because I've worked myself up to where I finally can live a holy life. It's because of Jesus Christ. My redemption and my hope is only because of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul teaches here. And verse 31, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. A little town, a little insignificant, out of the way, meaningless, unimportant town of Bethlehem. Out of that family, the least significant person in that family, David, out of you will come one who will rule my people and shepherd my people. And that's how God works. As I close this service today, friends, I also want to tell you, if you're here today, and you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never received God's forgiveness. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about tithing. I'm not talking about doing anything to please me or anybody else or any church you ever attended. I'm talking about your relationship with God. God loves you because He's chosen to love you. Jesus Christ was born as a baby. But when we pack up this and put it away after the holidays are over, we don't put it away in our hearts because it leads to Good Friday and Easter. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life without sin because He was fully God and fully man. He died in the cross of Calvary and He paid for your sin and He paid for my sin. And if you're here today and you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know what, that's, that's good, but I'm just not good enough for God. I'm not righteous enough. I'm, I'm gonna, I need some more time to get myself up to where, where God really will want me. I'm here to tell you some good news today, friends. God wants you right now, just as you are, because He specializes in calling the insignificant, the weak, and those who are not able to do it on their own because nobody can. That's what God wants. And I ask you today, this Christmas season, why not receive Christ as your Savior and receive His forgiveness for your sins and receive eternal life? God loves you and offers you that gift. 
and wants you to become part of his family, the body of Christ, on this Christmas day, this, this, this Christmas season. Marcy, come and lead us in our closing hymn as we get ready to leave this place today. You know, the message of Christmas, if, if it was only about the peace and the goodwill and the presence and the happiness and the joy, um, you know, people can agree with that. But just like that first Christmas, and as Tim mentioned this morning, uh, there is opposition. Uh, Satan does not like the true message of Christmas. In fact, when King Herod realized he had been tricked by those three wise men, and he realized they had gone their way and they weren't coming back, and he didn't know where the baby was, he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in his vicinity who were two years old and under. All these little children that we saw up here today, uh, in Bethlehem, there was a group missing. Two years and under, every single baby boy was butchered by King Herod. Because Satan was trying to stop God's plan of salvation. But Jesus had already been taken by Joseph and Mary to Egypt for a time. But Matthew says when that took place, it was fulfilled the prophecy from Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The idea of Rachel's tomb near Bethlehem, that Rachel would be weeping for her children, the baby boys that were killed. And the prophecy from Jeremiah talked about Rachel weeping because Israel was taken past her tomb on the way to slavery and the way to servanthood in Babylon. But God always wins. And the story of Christmas is that God has overcome Satan and his plans to defeat God's work because Jesus rose from the dead. And listen, friends, you can have victory too. Not by doing and becoming, but through Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. And as we close in prayer today, if there's anybody here who would like to come down and just, if you'd like to pray with somebody, you've never received Christ as your Savior, and you would like to just, just pray with someone today and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and receive His forgiveness for, for sins, I invite you, there's a prayer room just off to your right as you come down front here. Pastor Gary will be down here. If there's anybody that wants to just come and just pray today that you have a burden and, and maybe you are struggling. Uh, maybe you do feel like that weak and insignificant and, and you're struggling with that and you just want to pray and just be encouraged today that, that God loves you as you are. God has called you as you are and God wants to enable you to live a life pleasing to Him by His power. You can come down today and just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us, Your love for us. We thank You, Lord, that as we all realize how insignificant we are uh, compared to what the world considers powerful and significant and influential, that we are part of that great company of people in every generation, in every continent, on every island, in every place around this world that You have called to Yourself who are just like us. Because together, 
we can allow Your power and Your Holy Spirit to shine through our weaknesses so that it will not be focused on us, but on You. And we pray this Christmas season that You will shine through our lives, through our church, and through our ministries, and the glory will go to You. If there be a person here today who would like to receive Christ as Savior, has a burden to pray for, Lord, may they come down and just spend a few quiet moments in prayer before they leave today. In Christ's name we pray, and we look forward to coming back for the concert tonight at 6 o'clock. In Jesus' name, amen.